All right, good evening, everybody. If you want to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, that's where we'll be tonight. Romans 9. And we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to get into it. And as Aaron prayed, we pray that you'd meet each of us where we are tonight, that you'd speak to each one of our hearts. Some of us need different things from you, and that's why we're so grateful we have an omniscient God. You know our needs before we ask, before we pray, uh, and you're here to meet us, and we're here to meet you. And you promise us that as we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us, so we're holding on to that promise tonight. As we get into your word, we pray that you'd help us to understand it. We pray your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and guide, and that you lead and guide us into all truth, to have an understanding of this text. What is Paul trying to get across to the people of Rome, and um, to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul moves on as he's speaking to the Romans. Same vein, same thought, but uh, building upon it. And that's important to remember. Sometimes we take God's word like sound bites. Um, we live in a world like that right now where we just grab a section of text and that should explain it all. Headlines. I've I've read headlines, and then you read the story, and it's nothing to do with the headline. It's completely different. It's a, it's a hook, and sometimes we can use Scripture that way as a hook, and you'll see that several times tonight in chapter 9. Paul has already explained several of the things he's going to build upon in chapters 8, 7, and 6, and in chapter 9, he's going to build upon these things, and, and we should, we're supposed to remember those things, but I'll, I'll remind he says in verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, or Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall an eternally blessed God. Amen. It's quite a statement. <laughs> Paul is broken, has a heart for his people, for the nation, and we, we witness that as he continually, throughout the book of Acts, tries to minister in the synagogue first, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, following along with God's command but always wanting his Jewish brethren to come to know the Lord like he does, like he understands it. A saving relationship, and every one of us can identify with that. We're not Israeli, but we have people of our namesake, you know. We all have relatives, people that we wish would just open their eyes or open their ears. I mean, we use all those phrases over and over and over again. God, please open their eyes, open their ears, open their understanding, open their hearts, open something, you know. Please break through. And Paul's going to address that. There's a hardness that can take place in a person's life. It's uh, We joke around about Bible studies and how, well, you know, you're responsible for every Bible study you listen to, you know. So be careful how many Bible studies you sit in on because you're responsible for everything you know. And that's, of course, tongue-in-cheek. We, we want to know as much about God as possible. And we do fall short in obeying his word when we hear it. But there is something that can take place when the gospel is presented to a person over and over and over again in a loving way, and they reject it over and over and over again to the point where there's a hardness there, and I've seen it. 
it was hard for me to recognize at first. I thought, well, maybe I need a bigger sledgehammer. Maybe it's just a thicker exoskeleton that these people have. I need to break through. And what's happened is they've layered themselves with an armor, with a shielding. They've dulled their ears. They've dulled their eyes. They just no longer want to see to the point where, and this is where where I kind of can recognize someone who's almost too hard. It's when they're comfortable. They just smile at you. Yeah, that's pleasing. That's what I'm so glad for you. It's not shocking to them to talk about their sin. It's not something that makes them uncomfortable. I would prefer even rage (laughs) over complacency. I would prefer someone to get angry with me for talking about their sin for them to look at me and say, well, I know that's what you believe, but I just, I don't believe that. That's a very dangerous place for them to be in when they just smile and nod. That's a place where someone has become so hard, so used to saying no, that they no longer hear. Paul is desperate for the nation of Israel to come to know the Lord like he does, to the point where he mimics what Moses says about the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 30 through 32, Moses and God are going back and forth about the nation of Israel. And we know that kind of a funny struggle that they have. They're your people. No, they're not my people. They're your people. And they go back and forth. But this is a moment where Moses steps up into that shepherd role and really leans into it here with God as God says, I'm done. I'm done with them. And this is where so much doctrine is God changing his mind. Is he not? No. There's something miraculous happening here. There's sovereignty taking place. There's free will. There's a little urging going on. Here's what Moses says to God as God says, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm tired of their sin. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. It's a desperate man, but a beautiful heart, right? He says, you guys did some drastic things, but I'm going to go see if I can make it right. You know, pray. That's the implication. Get on your knees. Everybody act humble. Put some sackcloth and ash on or something. So he goes up to talk to the Lord and he says this. He returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses and Paul have that same heart, and I believe everybody has that same heart. Every parent looks at their kids and says, just please, and maybe not to that extreme. We, I, I don't know how many in this room have ever felt that towards their lost children, unsaved kids. Maybe there are a few. But trying to find an example that maybe we can all relate to as parents is when your kids are really sick. And it's, it's day after day of coughing and night after night of coughing and no sleep. And you can see that, and you know what it's like when your ribs hurt from coughing too much. And every cough is a, is a strain and a pain. And you're laying beside your kids, especially when they're so little and they're young. I mean, young, young, like baby to, you know, a year old or so. You're like, God, just give me the sickness. I'd rather take it. You know, that's the idea here. I'd rather be accursed for their sake. If it, if it counts for anything, Paul says, let me be accursed that they might live. And of course, 
It's a, it's a noble and thoughtful gesture, but it's also a very foolish one, isn't it? Paul knows who's already done that for them. Jesus has already paid that price. He's already become accursed for them. Paul knows that. But when Paul says to the Corinthians, I, I, I complete the sufferings of Christ is the way it's worded. In my body, I'm fulfilling or completing the sufferings of Christ. And everybody kind of looks at that kind of funny. Like, what do you mean? You mean Christ didn't do it all and you're kind of finishing? He's, no, he's partaking. It just, it carries on from Christ's resurrection and ascension to now these guys, these people, these men, you know, and they will now get beat and they will now get stoned and they will now get crucified. Some upside down, some right side up, some cut in half and so on, boiled in oil. They're going to complete the sufferings of Christ. This is part of it. The physical beatings are nothing to Paul. What hurts him the most, what agonizes him is his broken heart for the people. Paul says, I just continually have sorrow and grief. You're supposed to have the joy of the Lord. He does. He loves the Lord. He has the joy of the Lord. The Lord is joyful over him and he's joyful over the Lord. That's not the issue. It doesn't mean that we can't be sorrowful over some of the things that we see around us and the people around us. That's part of it. Jesus weeps as he's coming into Jerusalem this week. You know, oh, oh, I wanted to gather you under my wings. I don't think we probably understand that completely, except we see it in the heart of Paul. And maybe you've felt that. So desperately wanted to gather you underneath my wing. This is the time you should have known. This is your day, you know. So much there, so much emotion, so much love. I'm amazed how many try to, and I, I say teachers and, and pastors, and, and, and they're, they're fake. They've got to be fake. Who try to explain that stuff away or try to uh, relieve people of that burden that they're feeling for other people to the point where they may, just make up doctrines so that you don't have to feel that pain, anything to take that pain away, you know. Any way to feel any responsibility for the loss. Anyway, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. But there are doctrines out there that try to relieve us of our responsibility or our brokenness for the lost. I mean, and Paul will hit on it here quite a bit. I wish I was accursed, he says. I want them all to know. And, and then, of course, he goes through the list of all the things. I mean, Israel, and I think we need to understand this as, as, as just people in general. When we look at the Bible, there's just a bunch of people on the earth. And God just, I, I say willy-nilly, but just picked Abraham, you know, and, and started talking to this guy named Abraham, you know. And, and they have this relationship by faith and, and all and everything. And, and then there's some kids that are born. There's, there's Isaac and, and so on. And, and, and then there's Ishmael. And then, there's, and then out, of, out of Isaac, we've got, you've got Jacob. I mean, you've got Esau. And then it starts getting narrowed down here. Uh, which are you going to talk about, Jacob and Esau? But he, he decides to focus in on Jacob. He starts with Abraham, Isaac. He works to Jacob. He gets on Jacob. And he says, I'm going to change your name to from Tricky Jake heel catcher, to govern by God. He's going to talk about that tonight, to govern by God. And I'm going to set my love upon you, just you. 
And then there's going to be 70 of you. And then there's going to be a lot more. But I'm going to take you out of Egypt once you're about a million or so or plus, And you're going to be my people. Now, they're no different than everybody else in the world. He just set his love because I've got to find a group of people that I can be, have an example. And you're it. You weren't taller than everybody else. You weren't smarter than everybody else. You know, you weren't better looking. I'm just setting my love upon you because I choose to do so. And I want the world to see, and this is for the world's sake. This is what it looks like for a people to be my people and for me to be their God. And he started this up with them. And Paul's trying to explain to them when God picked them, he gave, he, he did, he, here's the list, uh, uh, everything that pertains to the adoption, just chose them, picked them out of, a, out of the orphanage, the world orphanage. There you go. Picked them. And the glory. He gave them the covenants. He gave them the word of God. He gave them the law. He gave them the priesthood. He gave them the temple. He gave them the sacrifices. He gave them all of the service of God. The promises are all for them of whom the fathers are, the fathers of the faith, all these, all these people, all these prophets coming from, from this group of people, the Israelites, according to the flesh. And then finally, if, if, not, if not the greatest of all, Jesus was born an Israelite. He's Jewish. He's Jewish. And that's what is such a struggle for him. It's been always about you people. And you're the most stiff-necked. You're the most difficult to reach. And he's broken with that. So he's moving now because that's what 6, 7, and 8 were about, the Jewish people and about being saved and what it meant to be walking in the Spirit and all. He says, but there's also another group, the Gentiles. There's another group, but it's been prophesied about. It's not like he just, it, it didn't work, like the Israelites didn't work. He's just now moving to now everybody. And so he's going to try to explain the Israelites who have it in their mind, and we need to listen to this. That because they have the name of Israel that they're saved, because they have the name of Israel that they have assurance of heaven, because of the name of Israel, because of their heritage, because of their forefathers, because of their foundation, it's automatically bestowed. It's like you were born into the Rockefellers, basically. You just wake up and you got a silver spoon in your mouth. And what Paul's going to try to take them to through this chapter is that it's not that, it's the seed, the seed of Abraham. It's not everybody in Israel, it's those in Israel who walk by faith. It's not all the Gentiles, it's the Gentiles that walk by faith. I'm not interested in blood, I'm interested in faith. And so he's going to try to take them through this to help them understand, you guys were given everything. But, verse 6, It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not that it didn't work. For they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. They understood this. We probably have a little difficult time understanding it, but I hope I set it up enough for us to when we read that next paragraph, you understand what he's getting at. Not everybody who's in Israel is Israel. Remember what that word means, governed by God. 
Not everybody who says they're governed by God is governed by God. Now let's bring that to 2022 America. Not everybody that says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody that goes to church is going to heaven. Not everybody that owns a Bible. We have the same problem in the church, in Christendom, that by the name of Christ, I'm saved. No. It's by faith. If you have not put your faith in him, if you're not governed by God, if you're not walking with the Lord, if you're not his, just saying you're a Christian doesn't make you one. It's so different. And it's not to put doubt into everybody. I think that's what so many Christians are sitting there. I've been in your shoes on your side of things going, well, maybe I'm not saved. And then all of a sudden we leave. Well, great. Wednesday night was great. I leave with doubt instead of assurance. Now, it's not what it's meant to be. It's my sledgehammer. It's God's sledgehammer. It's Paul's sledgehammer to the Romans. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. That's what James was trying to get at. I want to see you walking it, working it. There ought to be action followed by starting with faith, but followed with action. You have to see it. Faith without works is dead. There's no such thing. True faith has works. It just does. And it's not like, well, then I better get working. No, no. The fact that you don't have works is not the problem. The problem is there's no source for you to have works. There's no faith. You've got to go step back. If you just have faith in Christ Jesus, there will be works. That's how it, that's how it happens. I can't manufacture the works of God in my life. I have to come from a saved personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and there will be natural fruit that comes from my life from that. The problem is I need to pretend more. No, I don't want to pretend more. I want to wake up to the fact that I'm pretending and to figure out what it is. Why does this not happen naturally in my life? Not everybody that says they're Israel is Israel. And that was an eye-opener for them. That would shock them. Gentiles were firewood for hell. Israelites were saved. That's how it was. If you were born into one of those tribes, that's it. You just go through the motions. Throw up a lamb once in a while. Wear your yarmulke, whatever it is you had to wear. Look the part. Act Jewish. Pray loudly. When you're mourning, make sure everybody knows it, you know. But the heart hasn't been changed. There's no, there's no promise. There's no, Abraham was saved and accounted righteous because of his faith, because he believed God. Abraham was just a guy, like any other guy. But he believed God when God spoke to him. And that's the same thing for everybody. Do we believe God when he speaks to us or do we not? Do we even consider him? Do we think about him? Most of us do. Most of you are like, yeah, I do. I mean, I do, and I, that's wonderful. Then you're saved. I'm not here to bring doubt, but I am here in these last days to wake up those who've been sitting in church for decades and have been pretending this entire time, doing it because my wife wants me to do it, doing it because my husband wants me to do it, showing up, well, well once I had kids, I started going to church because I want to make sure they were churched. You're probably not saved if you thought that. You're probably not saved. Not because you shouldn't bring them to church, because that should have been a priority in your life long before you got saved, or long before you had kids. 
You read your Bible naturally because you absolutely need it. You know you can't sustain a, a, a spiritual walk with God without reading it. You, ha- you have to pray. It just comes out. These are natural things from a born-again believer. The Spirit inside of you, the Holy Spirit, cries out, Abba, Father. We read that last week. It's natural, Paul says. He's trying to break through to the Israelites. If that is not natural and it's all exterior, it doesn't mean you fake more. It means you get real with the Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 through 24, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's way worse than what I just said. These guys are actually casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they're not saved. Somebody asked me about Benny Hinn, and he's an easy target. Poor Benny. He doesn't even know it. You know, Benny Hinn's a word faith preacher on TV. If you don't watch, maybe he's dead. Is he dead? He's still alive. But nobody's going to raise their hands. Like, I know I watch him every set. No, <laughs> he's one of those guys that likes to swing his coat on TV and he can throw the Holy spirit around like a baseball. That's just who he is. And of course it's blasphemous and horrible. And you can't do that. And you don't have that kind of power. And yet you still see people, you know, you, can, you, you get the fake wheelchair guys. They're all out there. There's the fake wheelchair guys that probably could run down the aisle, but they decided to wait, you know, get a ride down first, and they ran out the aisle. But then you got some real people that are getting healed, genuine happenings, genuine miracles. Well, no, God, God wants to heal poor people. He'll use Benny Hinn. He doesn't care about Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn will answer for Benny Hinn later on. And any other word faith preacher out there that doesn't, have a relationship with Jesus Christ or blasphemes God. But if he wants to heal people, he'll heal people and he'll cast out demons and he'll, yeah, go ahead, swing your coat, whatever. And when the coat hits, I'll let him, you know, God doesn't care. He just wants people blessed to minister to them, you know, but they're going to be these guys right here. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. We never had a relationship. I used you. Now, it's not supposed to bring doubt, but it is supposed to bring us to a place where the things we thought were evidence aren't. I think that's the point. What Paul's trying to say is because of your namesake and because of your bloodline is not evidence of a personal relationship with God. Neither is casting out demons as evidence. Oh, we love signs and wonders. Look at them running around and they're praising the Lord and Maybe. I don't know their heart, and you don't know their heart. God knows their heart. Paul is making sure that they're having a good self-evaluation right here of their spiritual walk with their God. What have I been resting on? What have I been relying on? What is the evidence of my faith with God? Because I was trusting in these things, and you just took that out from under me, they say. Verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, parenthetical statement, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, statement over, 
It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So let me read it without the statement. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Paul brings it up, brings up the point that before they had been born and before they had even started doing good or evil, he has already made these statements about these two, prophetic statements. The older shall serve the younger, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. And that's where we get our first sound bite. This section right here is used as a sound bite for some doctrine that alleviates people the responsibility of evangelical living of leading people to Jesus Christ, because what difference does it make? You're either born saved or you're not. I mean, look at poor Esau and Jacob. He just chose to love Jacob. He just chose to hate Esau. What are you going to do? So therefore, we just go on and see what happens. It's a soundbite. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He's going to go on to explain it. But he's already explained this in chapter 8. That's why you can't take the soundbite. You have to read it in context. Paul is assuming you remember a page and a half ago. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's not God's fault that he's omniscient. Sorry, I know everything. I know everybody. I know your life before you live it. I see all of your days before you've even been created. I know Sam, front row. He knows what you're going to do the next decade, 20 years. He knew it. He knows. He knows Jacob. He knows Esau. He knows their lives. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated because he's seen the preview. Those he foreknew, foreknowledge, he predestined. It's not a complicated thought. He's trying to make a bigger point, but boy, we can get off track. We focus on the fact that maybe he chose some and didn't choose other. That's not what he's getting at. At all. We missed the point. Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. That's Jesus saying that. Now, my doctrine says that Jesus can't say that then. If I believe that God chose and refused, that is calling God a liar. You can't do that. I don't care what your doctrine is. If it calls God a liar, your doctrine goes. All of it. Every bit of Calvinism goes. All five points. It's inconsistent with God and it makes him a liar. So I say to you, Jesus said, ask. What difference does it make if I ask? Either I get it or I don't. Either he gave it to me or I don't. I have no, it has no bearing on my future. That's not true. It will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone, not the few I'd let. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. 
If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then being evil, in other words, in other words, if any of you people think that God is that kind of God, you're calling him evil. He says, you're evil. You're evil and you wouldn't even do that. You're saying God would do that? I'm passionate about this. I've seen it destroy people's faith. I've seen it stop evangelism. I've seen it paralyze people's walk with the Lord because it's paralyzing. It's an unjust God. It's unfair. It's, it's horrible. It makes him a monster. Who does that? I'm evil and I would never do that. And I'm a horrible person. Just ask me, you know. He finishes up with this. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Holy Spirit's available to all. For God so loved the world, not the select few. This is for everybody. So there isn't a person that you run into every single day that can't receive Christ. They may not, but that's their choice. A Calvinist can sit in a room like this and cannot say with a clear conscience, cannot say with a clear conscience that God loves everybody in the room because some people he hates and some people he loves. Some people he's chosen, some people he hasn't. So when someone stands in a room like this, I cannot say that God loves all of you. I can't because my doctrine says that he doesn't. Then there's probably a few of you that are on the hot side of things. So therefore, I can't say God loves everybody in this room. I, on the other hand, can say everybody in this room is loved by God. Every single person is loved by God. It has an option and a choice before them to love him back. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That was his first demonstration of his love. It is for you to choose. It is for you to accept. But I'm going to show you first that I loved you. Many will choose to reject that love. Many will choose to not accept that wonderful moment for themselves. That's them. That's up to them. It's their free will to do that. So important. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Of course not. Of course there's no unrighteousness. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Mm. J.D., I think you spoke too soon. You didn't read the next chapter or next paragraph. Absolutely not. Of course, it all jives together perfectly. The struggle that Paul is trying to deal with with the Romans, he's making assumptions about what they're going to respond with, and he's right to do so because he's going to give them a letter. This isn't a telephone conversation where he can answer and go back and forth with them. He's got to anticipate So that if God knows ahead of time, and this is the struggle, 
who is and who isn't going to accept them because he has that preview we talked about earlier. Why make the ones that are going to hell? I mean, isn't that kind of mean? That's the idea. Why do it? And this is where God steps in and says, no, I made them all anyway. How do you, and this goes right along with how come bad things happen to good people? Why doesn't God, doesn't he feel the obligation to step in and stop these things from taking place? This answers all those questions that everybody has. How do you have free will? How can you have a choice of love and not to love if you don't make the people and give them the opportunity to reject? You cannot have the love that we talk about in Christian Christianity, and you cannot have um, the free will that we're talking about unless we have that, unless there's an option to not. Why put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil even in the garden if you knew they were going to eat of it? I mean, would have saved us all a lot of headaches if you had just not planted that tree. I have to plant the tree. Love demands, I have to plant the tree. Love demands it. You do not have free will if I keep all the choices away from you. you. I can't stop all the drunk drivers. I can't stop all the sin, the adultery, all the things that go on in this world. I can't stop all sin. That's, love demands that option, that choice. Yes, we all feel the repercussions of it and the sorrow and the pain from those Choices that people make to rebel against God, but keep that in perspective. It is people who are rejecting God and rebelling against the beautiful, perfect will of God in their life. And that's why bad things happen. It isn't God's fault. That's what we struggle with today. That's the liberal mindset. The liberal mindset is, well, where were the police? Okay, I don't know, running around chasing other bad guys, but... The point is, that's the perpetrator. You cannot have free will. You cannot have true love without that choice. Of course I did that. Now, you hardened his heart. What, how can you resist God? Here's what he says. Verse 9, I'm going to go back and do a cross-reference here, but I think I need to follow up with Paul's anticipated Response to their question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? And he goes on to describe that God can do whatever he wants to do. Let's go to Pharaoh, though. I can't skip that. In John chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, a very interesting conversation takes place that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. 39, because they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that he should heal them. Exodus 7. We need to take time on this. This is the Pharaoh. This is the Pharaoh who is reluctant to give up the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has cried out for hundreds of years for a deliverer to be brought. Moses shows up. He's not very good at what he does, or he doesn't think so anyway. Aaron is his mouthpiece, and so the plagues begin. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you. We don't have time for it. But plague after plague, at first... Pharaoh's like, eh, it wasn't so bad. We can deal with 
you know, some inconveniences like that. But then the plagues got in, intense. And at times, he's like, fine, just go. Have it your way. And, and he tried to barter with them. Like, why don't you just go out and just you guys, just the men, you leave her, leave the weak ones behind. Leave, just you guys go out and worship your God for a couple of days and you come back. You hightail it back here. Because that's, that's initially what they said. I was like, Can we, we just want to go worship our God out in the desert. And fine, you go. You leave your kids back here. Like, you know, they're hostages, basically. No, 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 that's not what God wants. He wants us to all go. Well, they go back and forth. And the bottom line is Pharaoh says, yeah, you can go. And then the plague gets subsided because Moses, you know, asked God to give them relief. And the plague goes away. And then they forget how bad it was. And they say, never mind, you're not going anywhere. You know the story. That's a hardening of Pharaoh's heart that he does to himself. Yeah, you can go. Plague's over. Not so bad. We do that in Christianity too. All the time. Oh, man, I had a guy, and I'm going to call him out on it. He's not here now. Sat right there crying to me every Sunday for a month, this last month and a half ago. Please pray for me. I got a court date. Something's going down. Something bad's going to happen. I need prayer. I need prayer. I need prayer. You bet. You bet. You bet. Trial's over. Not there anymore. Oh, God, help. Oh, God, help. Hey, thanks. I got to go live my life. Oh, God, help. Oh, God, help. Thanks. I got to go live my life. Oh, God, help. Oh, God. Pretty soon, God hardens that heart. The way it's worded in Hebrew is he makes his decision firm. He makes his decision firm. Fine. I will not beat down this door anymore. I will not beg you to love me. I'm not going to force you to love me. You reject me. You reject me. You reject me. You harden your heart. I make your decision firm. That's what he's talking about back here. Pharaoh does that over. He didn't just willy nilly pick Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I know you probably would come to the Lord if I didn't intervene, but I'm not going to let you. So I'm going to harden your heart so you can't hear the gospel. Ha ha ha. I think he's got a monster. No, no, no. Pharaoh rejected, rejected, rejected. He says, fine, fine. I'm going to use you anyway. Firstborn is coming through right now. And you're going to let him go. You're going to let him go reluctantly. And then even after the firstborn dies, he says, go get him. Sends his army after them. That is a hard, hard heart. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. That is a person you do not want to be. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Well, no one. But indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Can I make a bedpan? I'd just pick something out of it. That'd be the dishonorable thing. Still useful. But nobody, wants, nobody signs up to be a bedpan in God's kingdom. But you know, we need them over there. Well, I'm pointing to you, Sam. You're not a bedpan, I promise. Or gravy boat. 
I don't get a choice. The potter makes a choice. He grabs the lump of clay. Here we go, spinning on the wheel. He presses his thumbs into me. He makes me who he wants me to be. Sound bite. See? He was made for dishonor, just the way it is. You were born a dishonorable vessel. You have no choice in the matter. Bedpan's always going to be a bedpan. It's not what Scripture says. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Whole counsel of God, not sound bites. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. I think I'm a bedpan. Then stop being a bedpan. Choose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior tonight. Accept him, believe on him, and be a vessel of honor. Be cleansed. Choose. I don't think God chose me. Then choose him quick. And all of a sudden, he'll have chosen you. Cleanse yourself, he says. The gospel is for everybody. The good news is that nobody has to remain as they are. They can receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, be cleansed of all their sin, washed white. I mean, we sing that in every song. Thank you for making me clean. Thank you for this beautiful robe of righteousness you've given me. You've cleansed the... We're all vessels of dishonor before we come to Christ. But we can be cleansed. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, we're back in Romans, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And there he drops the. Drops the shoe that they've been waiting on. This is it. What does it mean, that first part? Wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, enduring with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We've discussed it. We've covered it. But this is, he's just building upon the same thought. I made those who are going to hell because that's what I do. I didn't make them go to hell. Everybody was condemned. The entire world is condemned, John 3 tells us. The whole world is condemned. But those who believe on Jesus Christ are no longer condemned. I didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it, he says. We're all under condemnation. So why make the people going to hell? Long-suffering, vessels prepared for wrath, he decided to do it to bring his glory. Now, if you want to have an argument with God, I guess you could argue with that. I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I think we've discussed it and covered it enough here that you've got to make the vessels of dishonor that aren't going to choose you, not just the ones who will choose to be cleansed. You've got to make them all in order to understand true love and free will. But I guess if you're going to have a, a conversation with God about it, you could have one about that. Wouldn't it have been better for them if they just were never made? Well... We hear that several times from people in Scripture, don't we? It would have been better that I was never born. It would have been better for him to not be born because there's a millstone that's going to be hung around their neck. I mean, several times he says it would have been better. Even Jesus says that. 
Verse 25. Well, I better hit. Uh, I, got a, I got another one. Sorry. Revelation twenty two seventeen. It's You know it. We just went over it when we did Revelation. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. I mean, it doesn't get any more clear than that. Anybody can drink. Anybody can. Now, the next uh, section before we close here are three prophecies that Paul brings up. He says this about the Gentiles, because he just brought the Gentiles into the story. So he says in Hosea, he said this, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Paul is simply demonstrating to the Israelites that it's always been a prophecy of God, always been God's heart for the Gentiles to be saved. This is nothing new. This isn't like plan B. It's always been plan A. Yes, for the Jew first, but also for the Gentiles. Yes, Israel, but that was also to get Egyptians saved and Ethiopians saved and anybody else that would watch and observe this beautiful God. I mean, we've got this order of Melchizedek way before, you know, with Abraham and all that. This group of people that just love God. I mean, there's people groups out there. And he's got this Israel group to show the rest of the world. Here's what it looks like. When they left Egypt, not only the Israelites left, but other slaves left too. Ethiopians, some Egyptians. We find that later on. Moses married an Ethiopian woman in the wilderness. Where'd she come from? She left with them. She applied the blood on the doorposts of her house as well. Obeyed. What are the Jews doing? They're putting lamb's blood on the door. Get a lamb, you know. And they all did it. And all of a sudden they woke up and their firstborn was alive. It worked. I don't know how it worked, but it worked. We're leaving. Pack up, honey. We're going with them, you know. And this huge group went out. It worked just like it was supposed to. So Paul is simply saying in Hosea, this has always been promised. And we're watching it happen. This is nothing new. Verse 27, Isaiah also cried out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. and We would have been made like Gomorrah. Going back to, in those two prophecies, not everybody in Israel is Israel. In Israel, there's a remnant that gets saved. There is a, a portion. And if that portion hadn't got saved, we'd all be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would have turned into that group. The present condition of Israel, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. So I got to read the, the tone right. What shall we say then? Here's what we say. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Why was Jesus such a stumbling stone? Because... We're Israelites. We get saved by doing the law. We follow the rules. We tithe mint and rue. Those are spices, tiny little spices. They made sure they gave 10% of everything. We do the law. We gave all the lambs. We did all the oxen. We've been working, 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 working. 
And all of a sudden you're saying this Jesus comes along and he's the Lamb of God that takes the sin of the world. And we got to trust in him for our salvation. Well, I like my works. Because when we compare works, I'm way above everybody else. It's pride. Why did they stumble at him? Why was it so difficult for them to receive this grace and mercy? Because it's free. Because it's a gift. Because it's given. It's not earned. That's what stumbles them. It's one of the biggest problems we have. And I'm guilty of it. Not spiritually speaking, but I don't like to ask for help. I ask for help when I absolutely can't get it done myself. But for the most part, from past experience, if I take a little time and I think it through a little bit, I don't need help. It's a one-man job. So it's not that I don't want to help. It's just I rarely take on tasks that don't require one person. But I like to do things on my own. There's a sense of pride in it, I suppose. There's a sense of I can do it. I can make it happen. Work my way around it. Use that brain ears, you know. Improvise, adapt, overcome. Come on, you can do this, you know. Eh, I can't. You remember when we were carrying drywall in here, Mick? Drywall in this place? I was carrying two sheets of 5.8s. That's, that's how long ago it was. <laughs> two sheets of 5.8s. Some of you guys know what a 5.8s. Half inch, big deal. But two sheets of 5.8s, you know. Look at all these old guys with two guys on one sheet. <laughs> you know. Not anymore. And now I walk like this, by the way, you know. Now I ask for help. In the Midwest, we have a, a wonderful, and a, please don't get me wrong, a wonderful work ethic. We're going to work. We're going to get it done. Not in, not in days, not in hours, but we're going to get it done in minutes. We're going to get it done. We're not going till tomorrow. It's going to get done today. You know, it's a wonderful work ethic, except when it comes to spirituality. We love to earn our way, and that's really good most of the time. You just have to realize, and that's the struggle in the Midwest, is taking men and women to that place where you do realize you can't work your way there. You cannot get there on your own. You have to have help. You cannot climb that ladder. There isn't a ladder big enough. There isn't a bridge long enough. There's nothing you can build to do it. You can't do enough works to get to heaven. You really have to emphasize the hopelessness of the situation that the soul in the Midwest finds themselves in. You are absolutely hopelessly lost and going to hell without the help of Jesus Christ. You have to be absolutely perfect in every thought and every deed from the moment you were born to the moment you die. And if at any time you failed at any point, at any time in your life, any season, you're destined for hell. You are condemned. So it's not about my past mistakes and I'm going to do better from now on. Your past mistakes have an account and it's required is the requirement is death. You can't undo all that. Doesn't matter how good you are, you're still responsible for the death that's coming to you. You still have to pay the price for these things. That's my problem. Let alone in a few days you're going to sin again and now you've got a new back, you know, that you've got to worry about, a new history. I need to know what do I need to do about this. I'm in a desperate place. I'm going to hell. I'm going to die. I'm going to be separated from God forever. His word says so. Only perfection can come into his presence. What do I do about that? Good news. That's what makes it good news. Jesus Christ died on the cross and we're celebrating this weekend. 
reminding ourselves that he took all of our sins, every human being that's ever lived, past, present, and future sins were nailed to the cross at one point in time. He died for all the sins. God's wrath that was intended for you and every single person was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. He says, he took that cup and he drank it completely empty. He fulfilled every requirement. He fulfilled the law. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And this is where Abraham comes into place. Abraham was told equally good news. You're going to have a child and he's going to have descendants as as the sands of the sea. And Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of your sins. There's one thing you have to do. Believe God and it'll be accounted to you for righteousness. Believe on him for salvation. That's it. Seems too easy. It's really good news. Super good. Acts 15.10. Now, therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we as Jews believe that Through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved the same manner as they, the Gentiles. Paul in chapter 9 is trying to get across that truth to them. I appreciate your heritage. I love that you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in your lineage. But you need to get saved like the Gentiles get saved. Believe on Jesus for your salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And for those that are coming to meet you today for the first time in a place of brokenness, in a place of helplessness, hopelessness. They receive that good news that your son died on the cross for their sins. They accept that free gift of salvation that you offer to them tonight. They receive it in their hearts right now. We believe on you. We believe what you said. We have no other choice. There's no other option for us to get to heaven, but by the way that you made through your son, Jesus. That's your plan and your way, and we accept it. We believe on it. Lord, we want to be born-again believers, madly in love with you. We also want to be governed by you. We don't want to govern ourselves. We want to be in name only, but truly governed by you. We pray your Holy Spirit would come upon us, fill us to overflowing, and lead and guide us every single day, that we'd know what to do and what not to do, that we walk in the Spirit, paying attention with our eyes wide open to the things going on around us and not being distracted by the things of this world or the arguments that go on and all the strange things that can get us distracted from walking with you, but help us to see people, see souls, see hearts, see situations the way you see them and help us to be your hands and feet down here, walking in the spirit with knowledge that nobody else has, but us. We can look at a situation and spiritually understand because you can give us understanding. We want to walk that way. We want to make decisions that way. We want to live our lives that way. We want to be completely surrendered to you tonight. So take our lives, Lord. You gave your life for us. We now give you our lives back. We want to be living sacrifices for you, walking in honor and glory, bringing you honor and glory, Lord, as good sons and daughters of yours adopted into the family. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this week. We thank you for the reminder. We thank you for celebrating and, and giving us this opportunity to, for it to even be a celebration because you dying on the cross was not a celebration, but you rising from the dead was. We celebrate that because it means you were victorious. 
and that we're victorious with you. Bless these folks as they go tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.